0: Inaugural episode of Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'll be one of your two co-hosts, along with Nachi Gupta.
1: Jeff and I are both emergency medicine physicians in New York City, and in case it wasn't already clear, we'll be taking the emergency medicine practice monthly issue to podcast. Right,
0: and this is truly meant to be a corollary and not a substitute for the monthly issue. Although we'll be covering what we feel to be the most salient take-home points the issues themselves will offer a deeper dive into the particular aspects.
1: As you probably know, each issue also ends with several CME questions. Although we'll cover the necessary material to breeze through them, You'll have to refer back to the print issue for the questions themselves. Take a minute
0: right now to make sure you have subscribed to Amplify and your favorite podcast player so that future episodes are downloaded automatically and you'll always be able to be up to date.
1: Going forward, Jeff and I, along with the rest of the team at EB Medicine, are going to need your feedback to make this the best product possible. As you're listening through this episode, if you think of something you'd like to share with us, email us at amplify at ebmedicine.net. Again, that's Amplify,
0: E-M-P-L-I-F-Y at ebmedicine.net.
1: So I know we just said this would be a monthly corollary to the current issue, but for the first episode, we're going to focus on one of the most read issues from the last year, the October 2016 issue entitled Optimizing Survival Outcomes for Adult Patients with Non-Traumatic Cardiac Arrest. And we have one huge
0: disclosure about this episode, as we'll have for all episodes going forward. The content was not originally created by us. This issue was authored by Dr. Juliana Jung at Johns Hopkins University.
1: Enough introductions and disclosures. Let's get started. There are more than half a million adult cardiac arrests each year, with roughly 325,000 occurring out of hospital and about 200,000 occurring within the hospital.
0: And despite many improvements, overall chances of survival to hospital discharge remains quite low, with approximately 10% of of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and 20% of in-hospital cardiac arrests surviving to hospital discharge. And as a really brief aside, let me give a quick shout out to my fellow pre-hospital providers and EMS physicians. Almost 30% of witnessed out-of-hospital arrests survive to discharge. That's pretty
1: impressive. As with location of arrests, initial rhythm also plays a crucial role. More than 33% of patients survive VFib and VTAC arrests, while the number plummets to approximately 10% for those with initial rhythms of PEA and asystole. Unfortunately, in large studies, the first documented rhythm is a shockable VTAC or VFib, just about 24% of the time, with PEA occurring 37% of the time and asystole 39% of the time. Good stuff. Before
0: jumping into the nitty-gritty of this review, let's quickly review the latest iteration of the AHA guidelines, which are considered the, quote, gold standard in cardiac arrest science. These guidelines were last updated in 2015, which means we're almost halfway to the next scheduled update in 2020.
1: I think the biggest take-home from the 2015 AHA guidelines is that we're placing a huge emphasis on the importance of immediate, continuous, high-quality CPR with early defibrillation in lieu of more advanced interventions for which good evidence is lacking.
0: In the pre-hospital realm, the 2015 guidelines now include instructions for EMS dispatchers to instruct bystanders on compression-only CPR. For both in-hospital and pre-hospital BLS care, the AHA has now added an upper limit for chest compression rate and depth, as well as a goal for chest compression fraction. And don't worry, we'll go into that a bit more later.
1: In the ACLS realm, the AHA now recommends a formal respiratory rate of one breath per six seconds after intubation in lieu of a range. They've also added a piece on the potential utility of ultrasound, as well as removed vasopressin from the algorithm. And
0: lastly, in the post-arrest care section, the AHA makes three important recommendations. Considering PCI in all resuscitated patients with suspected coronary syndromes, a post-arrest targeted temperature range of 32 to 36 degrees Celsius for 24 hours after ROSC, and avoiding prognostication until 72 hours after ROSC.
1: Great. I think that lays out a nice framework for us to get going. As with all things in medical education, let's start with the pathophysiology. When considering all sudden cardiac arrests in adults, approximately 60-80% to of cases can be attributed to primary cardiac disease. Of those, 35-40% to are thought to be caused by acute coronary syndromes. In such cases, VTAC or VFib is the most common presenting rhythm.
0: Among non-cardiac causes, hypoxia takes the cake is the most common cause of cardiac arrest. According to recent estimates, this occurs about 20% of the time. Other less common but still important causes include hypovolemia, pulmonary embolism, pericardial tamponade, and sepsis. In the majority of these cases, PEA is often the associated rhythm.
1: The only rhythm left to mention here is asystole, which is the final common pathway for all forms of cardiac arrest, regardless of etiology. Not a whole lot more to say than that.
0: So let's get into the first section, which, following the classic EB medicine template, is the differential. First, it's safe to say that there is no true differential. If a patient is in arrest, they are unresponsive, apneic, with no palpable pulses. Done. But what if a bystander or layperson is unsure? Are those respirations? Are those agonal breaths? Is that maybe a pulse? Because there are gray zones, the AHA has had to take a stance. As such, cardiac arrest has become a diagnosis of assumption.
1: Which explains why pulse checks were completely removed from the lay rescuer protocols in 2000 and why EMS dispatchers are trained to encourage CPR when in doubt. Exactly.
0: Although some experts worry about the dangers of unnecessary CPR, i.e. chest wall trauma, the consequences of withholding needed CPR are far more dire than those of performing it
1: unnecessarily. That seems reasonable. While we're talking about the differential, let's talk about the common underlying causes. And by that, of course, I'm referring to the H's and T's. While VTAC and VFib are frequently related to a primary cardiac etiology, as mentioned previously, PEA can be caused by a number of very different conditions. The H's and T's mnemonic I just mentioned can be a helpful mental map to guide the resuscitation. For the five H's, we have hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion for acidosis, hyper and hypokalemia, and hypothermia. For the five T's, we have tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade, toxins, coronary thrombosis, and lastly, pulmonary thrombosis, or PE. Dr. Jung also mentions that PEA was formerly known as electromechanical dissociation. Some are now advocating for PEA as a form of severe cardiogenic shock, but that's for another episode. All right, let's move on to
0: pre-hospital care. Although ALS interventions are exciting, BLS is the cornerstone of cardiac arrest care. In out-of-hospital arrests, the AHA has prioritized rapid recognition of arrest, activation of EMS, performing CPR, and defibrillating shockable rhythms. This emphasis has led to widespread CPR training as well as public access to AEDs.
1: Despite this, in one large out-of-hospital cardiac arrest registry, only 33% of patients received bystander CPR and only 4% received bystander defibrillation prior to EMS arrival. Disappointingly, the same registry also noted a significant racial disparity, with 40% of whites and only 33 to 34% of blacks and Hispanics receiving CPR.
0: In an attempt to improve the rates of bystander CPR, guidelines now emphasize the role of EMS dispatchers in the chain of survival. Many EMS dispatch protocols advise a dispatcher to instruct the layperson to start CPR in patients who are unconscious with abnormal breathing as this is likely to be cardiac arrest. As we discussed previously, this will hopefully increase the percentage of people receiving CPR, but may also do some harm as patients with a primary respiratory problem may receive undue chest compressions.
1: Let's move from the pre-hospital realm to the initial ED evaluation. Absolute highest priority for all receiving emergency departments must be continuing high-quality CPR and defibrillation if indicated. All other interventions should either occur simultaneously or occur secondarily, like starting IVs, gathering more history, etc.
0: With respect to gathering history, there are a couple important data points that ED physicians should gather from EMS before they go back in service. Physicians should make sure to ascertain the time of arrest, whether it was witnessed, if there was bystander CPR, the initial rhythm, prior treatments, and the availability of airway and or vascular access.
1: And as I mentioned previously, the context of the arrest is also important given the broad range of underlying causes. This information could be gathered from either the EMS personnel or from family and friends if available. Some important considerations include the events immediately prior to the arrest, recent illnesses, pertinent past medical and surgical history, daily medications that could assist in treating an overdose, allergies, or any other history of drug use.
0: With the resuscitation and history gathering ongoing, there are a couple findings on physical exam that are important to elucidating the cause of the arrest. Unilateral breath sounds may point to attention tension pneumothorax. Distended neck veins may indicate either pericardial tamponade or tension pneumothorax. Mottled cold extremities would point to any shock-like or hypoperfusion state. Evidence of trauma or GI bleeding may point to hemorrhage as an etiology. Unilateral leg swelling, signs of recent surgery, and a gravid uterus should raise concern for a PE. The gravid uterus may also point to hypoxia related to seizures or eclampsia. Any dialysis access such as a fistula, graft, or external catheter should raise concern for hyperkalemia and acidosis.
1: Although seemingly basic points, during the stress of resuscitation, such findings may be overlooked. With history and physical completed, let's move on to the diagnostic studies. Fingerstick blood glucose is the only test that is absolutely necessary. Standard chemistries may help point to hypo or hyperkalemia, but this should be suspected based on history and perhaps the EKG if available. All other lab testing can wait until ROSC if it occurs.
0: In terms of diagnostic imaging, ultrasound is becoming more and more popular. A recent small trial demonstrated that ultrasound can successfully identify reversible causes of arrest. There's also some evidence that cardiac standstill may be a useful prognostic indicator as it's associated with failure of resuscitation.
1: I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Although ultrasound can help you identify reversible causes, you forgot to mention that even in that trial, survival was the same regardless of whether ultrasound was used or not. So if you're going to use ultrasound, it should not interfere with CPR or defibrillation and should be limited to the 10 second interval for rhythm checks.
0: Great catch. Remember, chest compressions and shock. These interventions are unequivocally proven to have a survival benefit.
1: All right, so at this point, we've moved from pre-hospital recognition to the initial ED management, which is, of course, continued chest compressions and defibrillation when necessary. Let's dive a bit deeper into treatment, highlighting some of the important changes in the 2015 AHA guidelines.
0: It's not sexy, and it's clearly hard work, but BLS remains the cornerstone of cardiac arrest resuscitations regardless of the venue. In 2015, one new addition to the BLS guidelines is an upper limit for chest compression rate. Instead of recommending greater than 100 compressions per minute, the AHA now recommends between 100 and 120 chest compressions per minute. This rate, along with allowing full chest wall recoil, will allow for adequate filling time and maximal cardiac output.
1: AHA also added an upper limit for the depth of compressions. No longer is the recommendation simply greater than 2 inches. It's now to compress to a depth of 2 to 2.4 inches. The rationale behind this recommendation is that good evidence suggests that compressions around 2 inches improve survival over shallower ones and injuries occur at depths greater than 2.4 inches.
0: Continuing their emphasis on minimizing CPR interruptions, in the 2015 guidelines, the AHA now recommends a chest compression fraction of at least 60%. What is a chest compression fraction? Great question. The chest compression fraction is a percentage of total arrest time during which the compressions are ongoing. Although it's not something we talk about frequently, there are several good studies pointing to improvements in ROSC and survival to hospital discharge with increasing chest compression fraction.
1: Early defibrillation remains key to survival in shockable rhythms with only one small change with respect to defibrillation in the newest guidelines. The 2015 guidelines advocate for defibrillation as soon as possible. There's no longer a need to wait for a round of chest compressions to finish prior to defibrillation. This recommendation is derived from studies showing that delays in fibrillation are associated with lower rates of survival. Let's move on to ventilation, every emergency physician's favorite topic. In 2010, the AHA recommended starting chest compressions prior to ventilation, as most patients with a non-asphyxial cause of arrest likely have a normal arterial oxygen concentration along with a sizable reservoir in the lungs. Restoring circulation is the primary goal which led to the recommendation of compression-only CPR for bystanders.
0: Right. And given that there is no clear optimal timing for initiation of respiratory support, healthcare professionals are expected to provide both chest compressions and ventilations. While beginning compression-only CPR in some circumstances may be reasonable, others need more immediate airway management.
1: And exactly how to manage the airway remains up to the emergency physician team. BVM, supraglottic airway, endotracheal tube, these are all appropriate means to adequate oxygenation and ventilation. As a reminder, with non-invasive ventilation, the ratio remains 30 to 2. If
0: an invasive advanced airway has been placed, there's one noteworthy change here. Instead of the former range of one breath every 6 to 8 seconds, the new guidelines recommend a single breath every 6 seconds. This change was made in response to animal data suggesting an increase in intrathoracic pressure due to positive pressure ventilation may lead to decreased coronary perfusion pressure, impaired cardiac output, and therefore have a negative impact on survival. This seems reasonable, so let's keep with the one breath every 6 seconds approach.
1: Remember, that advanced airway placement should only be attempted if it can be accomplished without an impact on chest compressions and defibrillation.
0: Chest compressions and shocks, the only true proven interventions in cardiac arrest.
1: Absolutely. And one last point about airway management before we move on to vascular access. If you are to place an endotracheal tube, continuous waveform capnography is a must. This recommendation has been made because it's highly specific for tube airway placement, though it's poorly sensitive. Don't forget that other non-capnographic methods may be necessary in some cases as well.
0: All right, so we don't have a ton to talk about with respect to vascular access, which is up next. Perhaps the most important point is that vascular access remains of secondary importance to the above BLS interventions. No study has shown a relationship between vascular access approach and patient outcomes, but studies have shown that tibial IO placement rates have higher success rates and faster access times compared to both humeral IO and peripheral line placement.
1: While that was the case at the time of publication, humeral IO placement is becoming more and more common. So the data with respect to that may be changing.
0: We've covered a lot so far, from epidemiology to initial ED workup and intervention, so let's move
1: on to the drugs. So I'll get us started with a quick overview. Overall, there is little evidence that any pharmacologic intervention substantially impacts long-term survival and outcomes in cardiac arrest.
0: Great point. So remember, compressions and defibrillation have been definitively proven to affect survival, whereas the same cannot be said for airway management, vascular access, or drugs.
1: Let's get started with vasopressors. Vasopressors are used to increase peripheral vascular resistance to optimize perfusion to the central organs. The combined alpha-beta adrenergic agonist epinephrine remains the agent of choice. However, it's unknown whether epinephrine is harmful, beneficial, or neutral in the management of cardiac arrest. That's right. Despite the fact that one milligram of epinephrine
0: given every three to five minutes remains the standard according to the AHA guidelines, the evidence is severely lacking. In one randomized controlled trial, the use of epinephrine led to more incidences of ROSC, but there were no long-term survival benefits.
1: While it's true that there is no observed survival benefit, it's important to note that this study was stopped early due to ethical concerns, and it was actually underpowered to detect a survival benefit. So that about covers epinephrine. What about vasopressin? Well, there's one huge
0: change to discuss in the 2015 guidelines. As no evidence exists to support the use of vasopressin over epinephrine, vasopressin is now out of the AHA guidelines. One more time, vasopressin is out of the 2015 AHA guidelines, so please remove it from your cardiac arrest toolbox.
1: What about the other drugs, like the antiarrhythmics and other agents we often consider? Great point.
0: Amiodarone remains the workhorse antiarrhythmic in cases of VT or VF that is refractory to CPR, defibrillation, and vasopressor therapy. The evidence for its use is derived predominantly from two randomized trials that showed increased benefit with respect to ROSC and short-term survival. Lidocaine remains in the guidelines merely as a consideration as an alternate to amiodarone. Again, the literature on this is severely limited to support its use.
1: We're certainly seeing a theme here of a shortage of a strong body of literature, and I think that's important to keep in mind while making your choices at the bedside. There are also a few other drugs I wanted to mention briefly. In the antiarrhythmic category, procainamide and magnesium have also been studied but have shown no survival benefit. Atropine, which was removed from the guidelines in 2010, continues to have no role in the management of asystole or bradycardic PEA. And lastly, we have bicarbonate and calcium. Bicarb may be warranted in cases of severe metabolic acidosis, hyperkalemia, or TCA overdose, but shouldn't be routinely used. Similarly, calcium may be used in cases of hyperkalemia, but its routine use isn't recommended either.
0: I think that about does it for the drugs. Let's move on to the post-arrest care in the emergency department.
1: All right, I'll get us started continuing with the pharmacology theme. So if an antiarrhythmic was used as part of the resuscitation, it's reasonable to continue this therapy after ROSC. Additionally, in cases of recurrent post-arrest ventricular ectopy, initiating antiarrhythmic therapy may also be beneficial. However, as I just mentioned, the theme recurs, and there is limited evidence to support this practice. Beta blockers have also been studied, but they have no clear role in post-arrest management, and in the 2015 guidelines, the AHA defers this decision to individual providers.
0: With respect to post-arrest hemodynamic support, the AHA recommends promptly treating a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, but they don't specifically recommend an agent. In the article, based on available evidence, Dr. Zhang recommends norepinephrine as it's less arrhythmogenic than the alternates. Post-arrest vasopressors have been studied, usually in the context of post-arrest bundles of care, but the results have been mixed and it would be difficult to parse out the specific benefits of the vasopressors within the bundle.
1: The AHA also outlined specifics for post-arrest cooling as targeted temperature management has been intensely studied since the first trial in 2002. In one of the most important trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, Nielsen and others compared a targeted temperature of 33 versus 36 in nearly 1,000 patients and found no difference in survival or neurologic outcome. This is a very important conclusion and perhaps suggests that avoidance of fever may actually be more important
0: than cooling. And for this reason, the current recommendation is that comatose post-arrest patients should be cooled to a temperature of 32 to 36 degrees for at least 24 hours. There's no suggested method for cooling and temperature monitoring, but passive external cooling is typically sufficient. Also take note of the specific recommendation against chilled fluid boluses in the pre-hospital setting.
1: Although we already discussed post-arrest care, let's talk about tools we can use to prognosticate during the course of the resuscitation before ROSC. I'll start with end-tidal CO2. As we stated previously, every patient who is intubated should
0: be monitored by continuous waveform capnography. tidal CO2 is a byproduct of cellular metabolism, and as such, it becomes a reasonable surrogate measure of cardiac output driven by your team's chest compressions. Although there are two studies showing a strong association of tidal CO2 of less than 10 with mortality, there are also many possible error sources in tidal CO2 measurement. For this reason, the AHA recommends that tidal CO2 not be the sole prognostic indicator, and instead it should simply be considered as part of the global clinical picture.
1: As ultrasonography becomes more readily available, many are turning to it for assistance in guiding resuscitations. Despite many studies indicating that ventricular standstill may predict mortality, its use was not discussed in the 2015 guidelines. So continue to use it at your own discretion.
0: So neither end-tidal CO2 nor ultrasound should be used alone, but it's reasonable to use them as important data points in determining the global picture.
1: Exactly. So all this leads to the obvious predicament. When do you stop resuscitating? Although older studies have shown worse survival outcomes with longer resuscitations, with high-quality CPR, patients have also survived substantially longer resuscitations with good outcomes. Each patient is a unique case, and all decisions need to be individualized. There's no one-size-fits-all here.
0: All right, two sections to go. We're in the home stretch. Next up, we have special circumstances.
1: I'll get us started with pregnancy. In pregnancy, the gravid uterus may compress the aorta and IVC while supine. So manual left uterine displacement is recommended for all patients beyond 20 weeks gestation. As ultimate relief of cable compression occurs with evacuation of the uterus, The 2015 AHA guidelines stipulate that resources for perimortem C-section should be mobilized as soon as cardiac arrest is diagnosed in pregnant patients greater than 20 weeks. Perimortem C-section should be performed if standard resuscitation with uterine displacement fails to restore circulation within four minutes.
0: Next up, we have pulmonary embolism. As of the 2010 guidelines, the use of fibrinolytics in arrest was discouraged. However, in patients with confirmed, that's confirmed and not suspected, PEs, the 2015 guidelines advocate for consideration, not recommendation, of clot-directed therapy in the form of fibrinolysis, surgical embolectomy, or catheter embolectomy.
1: Next are the opioid overdose arrest patients, a population we're unfortunately seeing more and more frequently. No big surprises here. As a low-risk, high-potential benefit medication in cases of suspected opioid overdose... The 2015 AHA guidelines support the use of naloxone as a standard part of the BLS management, as long as it doesn't interfere with CPR and defibrillation.
0: Along similar lines, the next special circumstance are patients with other toxicologic causes of arrest. The only other toxicologic cause specifically mentioned in the 2015 guidelines is that of local anesthetic systemic toxicity. In such cases, intravenous lipid emulsions are recommended. The exact mechanism of action is unclear, but a recent systematic review showed a benefit in all published human cases.
1: Segueing to electrolyte disturbances, the next consideration is torsade de point. Caused commonly by electrolyte abnormalities or toxic ingestions, the treatment of torsade related to QT segment prolongation is straightforward. One to two grams of magnesium IV push.
0: Unlike torsades, which is a relatively rare phenomenon, hyperkalemic arrests are more common given the ever-increasing number of patients with end-stage renal disease. In addition to standard therapies, calcium, given either as calcium carbonate or calcium gluconate, are the first treatments to stabilize the myocardial membrane. After stabilization, the next goal is elimination of potassium. Although emergent dialysis is most efficient, in the setting of an arrest, it's both not practical and not feasible, so bicarb, IV-short-acting insulin and glucose, and nebulized albuterol should be given.
1: The last special consideration is for cases of accidental hypothermia. Although not mentioned in the 2015 AHA guidelines, we've all heard the saying, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. So it's worth reviewing the 2010 recommendations on this. Most importantly, resuscitation should continue per standard guidelines. Do not wait for the patient to rewarm, as this only delays care and provides no benefit. One major modification does exist. In addition to the standard therapies, core rewarming should be initiated. Many methods exist, and there is limited data to support one or another, but cardiopulmonary bypass is thought to be the most effective technique, followed by thoracic lavage with warm IV fluids and humidified air as adjuncts only.
0: All right, last section here. Let's end with the recent controversies and new cutting-edge advances.
1: The first controversy we'll discuss is the use of steroids. Although two studies showed some benefit to steroid administration as part of a bundle with vasopressin and epinephrine, there's no evidence to the independent benefit of steroids and thus no recommendation to support their use. All right, take note of this next one here.
0: We're talking about percutaneous coronary interventions. In 2010, the AHA recommended a 12-lead ECG in all post-arrest patients, and I'm pretty sure we all do this already. Interestingly, 96% of patients with STEMIs on the initial ECG had ACS on angiography, but 58% of patients whose ECG didn't meet STEMI criteria also had ACS. That's a huge percentage. 58% of patients who didn't meet initial STEMI criteria on the ECG also had ACS on angiography. Just think about that. In light of this, as well as other studies indicating that early PCI was associated with improved survival and reduced risk of death, the 2015 AHA guidelines recommend that for all patients with ROSC after arrest of suspected cardiac etiology, emergent PCI should be considered regardless of neurologic status or presenting rhythm.
1: That's a pretty big deal. Make sure to advocate not just for the ICU, but also for the consideration of emergent cath. Last up is eCPR or extracorporeal CPR. Briefly, for those not familiar, ECPR involves placing the patient on an ECMO circuit right in the ED, mid-arrest. This is done throughout the world, and even done in some countries in the pre-hospital setting, with physician-staffed response vehicles. Admittedly, this is a very resource-intensive and costly intervention, requiring buy-in from the emergency department, vascular surgery, and the intensivists. However, in some circumstances, eCPR offers critical additional time to facilitate treatment of an underlying cause. Many captivating case reports exist, but in the only prospective study demonstrating an improved neurologic outcome, eCPR is bundled with hypothermia and an aortic balloon pump. So the specific benefit of eCPR is difficult to discern. Regardless, as the technology improves and ECMO circuits become smaller and easier to run, I'm sure you'll see many more studies to come.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the eCPR controversy will become one of the hottest topics in the coming years. It's pretty exciting stuff with huge costs and huge potential benefits. For now, let's wrap up with a summary of what we discussed today. When in doubt, start CPR immediately, beginning with chest compressions.
1: Defibrillate shockable rhythms immediately. Don't wait for a round of compressions to end first. Don't forget subtle changes in how we provide chest compressions. Compress to a depth of 2 to 2.4 inches at a rate of 100 to 120 compressions per minute with a chest compression fracture of greater than 60%.
0: After intubation, end-tidal CO2 is a must. The new recommended rate is one breath every six seconds.
1: Vasopressin has gone the way of atropine and no longer has a role in cardiac arrest resuscitation. Ultrasound and end-tidal CO2
0: should be used to determine a global clinical assessment when prognosticating during an arrest. Neither is sufficient alone. Remember to restrict ultrasonographic pauses to no more than 10 seconds and during the pulse check.
1: Consider emergent PCI in those with a suspected cardiac etiology, even if the EKG doesn't show a STEMI.
0: Although the real benefit may come from avoiding fever, targeted temperature management should be pursued with a temp of 32 to 36 degrees Celsius for 24 hours.
1: And although it's only in its infancy, eCPR is gaining favor. It's expensive, but it's potentially life-saving. And thus concludes the
0: first episode of
1: Amplify. Let us know what you think. Again, you can send us feedback to amplify at ebmedicine.net.
0: And don't forget that this is a corollary, not a substitute for the actual monthly issue. So head over to the EB Medicine website and get your much-deserved CME. Talk to you all soon.